As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. We're back after a slightly longer than expected summer break with a new episode all about our fears, anxieties and hopes amid the pandemic. People are afraid of the virus and understandably so after months of the government stoking our anxiety to get us to stay at home while the media pumps grim death statistics into our screens on a daily basis. Is it healthy or wise to remain in this state of anxiety and fearfulness? How can we see God at work during times of mental health crisis and perpetual anxiety about the end? And how can we foster an appropriate, grounded, but Christ-like hopefulness in its place? Stay with us as I chat to my dad, John Wyatt, about all this and more in today's episode. Well, welcome back, John. Uh, good to be speaking to you again after a little while. Um, today, we're going to look at this question of mental health during the uh, the pandemic and the lockdown that we're still living in. Um, you've been doing some reading and some thinking about the roots of some of this and some of the challenges people are facing with mental health. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about that, particularly this idea that you mentioned about death anxiety? Yes, uh, it's a really interesting topic uh, you know normally most of us uh, live our lives without having to face the reality of, of death and particularly in a sort of modern sanitized culture culture we live in you know death is something that apart from the sort of uh, terrorist outrages or so on by and large death is is, is relegated to um, something that happening behind curtains in a, on a hospital ward but what the coronavirus has done is it's sort of confronted all of us in with the reality of death and and certainly at the time when the epidemic was at its peak here in the UK you know we every, every night we had uh, images of um hospital wards and and body bags and burials and and sometimes mass graves and so on and uh this has triggered what what many um psychiatrists and and, and counselors refer to as death anxiety and and this is uh even though most people don't know anyone who's died of coronavirus uh have not been sick themselves you think even in a, in this case you know we, there's only a few percent of the population has actually caught it and even a smaller fraction of them ended up seriously ill do you still think that even this kind of pandemic can trigger that kind of anxiety and fear about the end well, I think yes, partly because of these uh, the media images, and, and partly because it was a deliberate strategy of the government. You know that um, in the early stages, 
the government, I think quite deliberately and, and, and for understandable reasons, was trying to stoke fears of death. I mean, the the message uh, that we we got from a stay at home, save the NHS, protect lives, sort of, you know, translates pretty well, you know, to the, the hidden messages, unless you stay at home, you might die or you might lead to the death of a loved one. And, and so... Um, that kind of uh, deliberate, intentional stoking of the fear of death uh, inevitably has consequences in the population. So do you think it's fair to say, I've seen some people say that everyone in the UK or the world who's lived through the last six months, regardless of their own personal circumstances, has experienced a kind of low-level form of traumatisation by this pervading sense that there is peril and danger around us? Well, of course, it's it's in, it's a, it's incredibly variable, isn't it? How people respond to this extraordinary, um, unusual set of circumstances um, is very variable. And I think as you talk to people, you see that range of responses, don't you? But I think what is clear is is that if you are constitutionally already a kind of anxious person, particularly if you know you if you had a tendency to health anxieties, or or if you had obsessive compulsive traits you know desire and, and, and concerns about cleanliness and contamination then it's inevitable that this kind of experience and all the mass uh, media messages are, are going to stoke those kind of fears and, and so I think it's particularly people who have had some kind of pre-existing tendency uh, to um, those kind of mental health traits who are particularly at risk and I guess part of the problem is, as you say, it was a deliberate government strategy to make sure people were afraid of coronavirus because that was the lever which would, the mechanism by which they would obey the lockdown rules and stay at home. But now we're experiencing the opposite problem is that the government now wants us to get back to our lives and yet a significant proportion of the population has, the fear has not left even as the virus has been subsiding. And so they continue to live in, to live in anxiety and in fear even when the government no longer wants them to. I think that's exactly right, particularly for the older generation. You know, and I speak of someone who's in my 60s um, and who is well aware that this, you know, the time at increased risk. And of course, it's worth just again pointing out how unusual this is in a, in a viral infection and, and a pandemic to have this very, very strong relationship between age um, and mortality. In fact, I th- I think it, it's probably almost unique amongst viral infections. Uh, and, and there are interesting medical reasons as to why it is that, the, that your risk of mortality just rises inexorably as each decade goes by until the time you get into your 80s, you know, you, you have a very high risk of mortality. Um, so it is particularly the older population who, who once those fears are raised... Uh, whatever the government says, they're, they're they're sitting there and thinking, well, you know, is it really worth the risk? You know, it, it, am I risking my life by getting on the underground here in London? And and if so, do I really need to get on the underground? You know, am, am I risking my life by going to a restaurant or by going to church? Um, and and so I think there are quite a lot of older people who who have almost retired into their homes out, out of fear. Now, this death anxiety, again, is, it's a really interesting phenomenon because some 
uh, psychiatrists, psychotherapists would argue that uh, death anxiety is one of, is one of the great motivating forces for the human race, and that it's it's part of a kind of tragic reality of all human beings that that we live with this outrageous fact that we're going to die, and and we spend our life trying to find ways of of coping with this completely unacceptable and, and outrageous fact. And, um, there's a very ancient tradition. I mean, the, the Greek philosophy of Epicurus was explicitly directed at um, reducing death anxiety because Epicurus said, well, there aren't any gods. There's no, there's no uh, afterlife. Uh, when you die, you die. And therefore, uh, relax. You don't need to be worried about death um it, it and and so this explicit uh, way of, of philosophy as a way of coping with death anxiety and there are modern psychotherapists who would basically say the same and and they their their way of 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 helping people to cope with death anxiety is reassuring them that there is nothing that happens after death there is no reason to be frightened of death it's simply a natural part of everyday life of course whether that helps uh whether it's true uh and, and whether it helps is, is another question and it's it's interesting that despite you know living in an age in which kind of secular materialism is probably the prevailing kind of world view that there is nothing that happens after we die death anxiety isn't going anywhere <clears throat> if anything maybe it's getting more prevalent I think it is, and uh, well, certainly it's being stoked. Um, I think I think it's always there. It comes in different forms, um, but I, I think that um, part of this wave of mental health issues that we're now currently seeing, in which certainly mental health professionals and GPs are are facing, ha- has has been uh, is it, it, forms of death anxiety coming out. Uh, it, in a way that you know previous generations hadn't we hadn't seen it and so what are the kind of professionals with the practitioners reporting what what is the evidence about how these anxieties and fears are being manifested yes well i came an interesting across an interesting article in the lancet just published in july uh, 2020 um how mental health care should change as a consequence of the the covid19 pandemic and We'll put the link in the uh, in the notes to this podcast, but it, um, it it was really just a review of the global impacts of of, of uh, COVID nineteen on mental health, and and not surprisingly, it it showed uh, you know very significant impacts both for the general public, but also for 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 people with pre existing mental health disorders, as we've already said, and and particularly for healthcare workers um and the paper as a whole just um shows increased uh risks of anxiety depression with anxiety this is just in the general public and um a, a rise in phobias of specific particularly health phobias and again not surprisingly as we've said you know if you've already had a tendency in that direction the the idea that there's a hidden, lurking, lethal virus which could be on hands, it could be 
on, on, on a neighbor who on this stranger walking by you on the street it could be anywhere in the supermarket or uh, on the public transport those health phobias you can see um, can become very debilitating and, and people just don't want to to engage and you sometimes see people don't you on the street who just who who seem to be petrified they're 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 walking with gaze averted they're they're steering their way out of other people they're they're hovering not deciding whether to they're exposing themselves to risk um another thing would be um there's evidence of binge watching television um again it's often been encouraged hasn't it by companies like netflix and and bbc and and and, and so on but there's quite a lot of evidence that binge watching television is associated with mental health problems with mood disturbances and with poor sleeping and um other kind of addictive behaviors uh increased social media exposure which again has been associated with some increased mental health symptoms um and and it also an increase in risky behaviors interestingly there's been an increase in for instance online gambling um and uh alcohol consumption and and um drug abuse and so on that these kind of addictive behaviors when people are locked down and when they're having to cope with uncertainty and fear that uh, can become more common and uh, is that a kind of an expression of the the desire to kind of retreat from the dangerous world outside and it's never been easier to construct your own safe, largely digital world on the inside. You can order your food to be delivered. You can watch things on Netflix. You can interact with people through social media. And you never actually have to go out your front door and risk the fact that this invisible virus, which is everywhere, could could kill you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, this this pandemic above all has been, the experience has been completely transformed by the power of the technology, hasn't it? And and if you just compare that with the stories of what happened in the last major pandemic, the, the flu pandemic in 1918-1919, um, the experiences were much more, because of this, there's very little technology, um, it's it's much more of, of a sort of communal experiences. Um, it, it wasn't possible to subsist by yourself um, and, and um, it was much less possible. So... Um, I do think the availability of technology and and of course for many professional people who found that they've been able to work from home very adequately and and in some ways it's been quite advantageous um so again experiences have been very mixed whereas you could imagine for people in the informal economy who find that their job has disappeared and there's no prospect of it coming back soon and uh you know the attractions of trying to forget it all by binge television watching or online surfing social media must be very high and so when we start to think about how as christians we might respond to a kind of tsunami of fear and anxiety i guess there's an immediate kind of glib response which says well christians have nothing to fear because we believe in an all-powerful all-loving god and so don't be afraid qed that's that it feels a bit unsatisfactory doesn't it well and of course it's just not true i mean you know if, if you look at 
it just in our own uh, Christian communities, we see that many of these things are going on. Uh, many uh, Christians are expressing very high levels of anxiety and fear. And, um, and therefore, I think trying to dig a little deeper and thinking of this from a, from a spiritual point of view, uh, and, and to think why why is this happening I, I do think that for many of us in our society and this includes Christians as those as well as those who have a different faith or no faith we're all control freaks we 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 live in the illusion that living in the modern world we can control our lives that um, the government and uh, the establishment have basically got things under control our employment prospects are secure our house and security is all is all okay and and we can plan and control our lives and and we know what the future is what's going to happen we can predict what's going to happen over the next years and and that therefore gives us a sense of security against this anxiety you know we we tell ourselves we don't need to worry we everything is in control and of course all of that has been blown sky high uh, because it becomes apparent that even the politicians don't know what's going to happen and don't know how to respond. And the experts can't agree amongst themselves. And um, and I certainly don't know what's going to happen in my employment prospect. No one can tell me. And, and when I look at our, my children, I can't, I don't know what about their education is, is going, what's going to happen and, and will, what will the, the effect be for them in the future. So all these uh, illusions of control have been, uh, destroyed and, and it's not surprising that that raises uh, a level of anxiety but maybe it's also an opportunity as as we kind of almost have a blank slate where we've exploded our previous comforting myths and delusions of control that we had lived previously and now there's there's a space as believers to build a better a better future a better worldview a better way of seeing the world uh, which is not based on the idea that we can control things, but that actually acknowledges that we live in a in a frightening and unpredictable, chaotic world, but we do also follow a God who is sovereign. Yeah, I think that's ab- absolutely right. I, I think um, it's a wake-up call and a recognition that these illusions of control are actually kind of idle that we've constructed. Um, and and, and uh, like all idols... Uh, it exercises a, a fascination for us and a, and, a, and a lure on our hearts. And waking up to the reality that that the future is unpredictable and that we can't control it uh, is actually a spiritual opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity for uh, going deeper, I think, in, a, in, in trust. I mean, again, easier said than done. And uh, I think we need to to think through a bit more about you know how how does that work? But but I think the the idea that this is a wake up call and an opportunity for us, um, but also a time of testing. Hmm. Because I suppose <clears throat> it's worth noting that fear in itself is not automatically a negative thing. You know, I picked. There's, I think there's a strong theme in a lot of contemporary Christian kind of culture and the songs that we sing and the books we write, which is very negative towards the idea of living in fear and the old the kind of the, emphasize the idea that the Christian story is about living outside of fear. Whereas 
some things are right to be afraid of. You know, it's good to be afraid of, um, I don't know, uh, sharks if it makes us not swim in shark-infested waters, you know, to use a silly example. So I guess it's about no- noticing what, making sure how do we keep fear in its right place and not letting it take over. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you can see sort of biologically how important the fight or flight response is, you know, that um, when you, uh, there's an acute threat behind you, you know, you hear the, the twig snapping and you turn and it's a tiger, uh, that surge of that stress response, the surge of adrenaline, the the racing heart and all that is is equipping you f- for immediate, um, for your safety, to protect your life. Um, and and so it has a real biological value and, it, and, it, and it's part of our created humanity. But it's when you get this free-floating anxiety, when, when those responses are just constantly triggered hour after hour, day after day, uh, that, that fear then, that, that, that low level, constant levels of fear and anxiety be, does become a very destructive thing. And, and, and at that level, I think that kind of chronic fear is, is always unhealthy. Um, and, and, and whatever we're frightened of, uh, at that kind of chronic, persu- uh, continuous, low level, free floating anxiety uh, is, a, is a very destructive force. At what point, I mean, I know you're not a, a mental health professional, so this might be beyond your purview, but at what point do you think we should, if we're experiencing this kind of, uh, describe you this free-floating fear that's not attached to particular triggers or stimuli, but is just a pervading thing that hangs over our life, at, at what stage does that become something that we actually need to go and seek professional help for? Is that, what stage yeah. does that become, you know, generalised anxiety disorder or whatever? Yeah, so, so the medical... Uh, response is generally when these things are seriously interfering with with your normal everyday life you know if it's something that is manageable in other words if if I can get on with my life and function normally and work and and relax and sleep and eat normally uh, then it probably doesn't need professional medical help but if the uh, symptoms of anxiety or depression or stress or whatever are seriously affecting my ability to live a normal life. So, for instance, if I'm finding that I just can't concentrate for my normal work or I'm simply not able to sleep, I'm just uh, lying awake and in bed night after night, then I think, yes, you do need... That's a warning sign. You know, that that's a red flag. And... I think it needs professional medical assessment and help. And, and obviously the first place to go in the UK is to go to a general practitioner um, and, and, and get a human assessment and, and face-to-face consultation. And for those who, who who are experiencing fear, which is not at that level, which is something you were discussing before, this kind of low level, um, probably non-medical, uh, non-clinical at least, um, how is it helpful to understand that maybe as uh, 
a, a manifestation of a t- of being in a time of testing from God. Yeah, I, I've been very helped by um, reading a book about the the grace of waiting by Margaret Whip, and she uses a number of uh, pictures in the scriptures about that reflect the times of waiting and. The one that I found particularly relevant uh, is the image of the wilderness or the desert, which recurs in, in the Bible. And I think it's very interesting to apply that thinking about the wilderness to um, to the coronavirus pandemic, because I, I think many people are finding this period of their lives uh, as a kind of wilderness experience when when. Uh, a lot of our props, a lot of our comfort sources have all been stripped away from us. And um, the the wilderness in, in, in biblical thinking is, is a place where it, we're both deconstructed and then reconstructed. It's all unmaking and remaking. We're, we're, we're stripped down to our essentials, uh, but not in a, in a purely negative way sense but the idea being that uh, the wilderness place is a place for for learning in a new way for for uh, reconstructing a healthier way of living uh, and so the wilderness is a place where we're being tested and uh, and refined you know again a biblical image that it's that it's by going through these tough experiences that we're being internally and spiritually renewed and refined and that's such a rich biblical metaphor isn't it you know you saw the ancient israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness between egypt and the promised land so that god could refine them and prepare them to go into this place of abundance that he was calling them into um jesus obviously spends 40 days mirroring that in the wilderness but at the start of his public ministry um you know numerous Old Testament prophets are called out into the wilderness for t- for particular moments when a lot of things are stripped back. You know, maybe there's there's no food or water, and they have to rely solely on God's miraculous provision. Or maybe it's a time when some, you know, like I think of um, was it Elijah who was kind of despairing about how there was he was the only faithful believer left in Israel, and and it's a place. The wilderness is a place where God actually resets his thinking and kind of turns him around and says, actually, that's not quite right, and here's the way you should be thinking and responding. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting that uh, none of those characters actually chose to go into the wilderness and said, I know what, I'll go and just go out into the wilderness and have a jolly good time with God. It, they're actually, it, it's it's forced on them, and it's forced on us. You know, we don't, we didn't choose to go and come into this wilderness experience, but we find that is happening to us. And then from a Christian point of view, you know, we're being called to say, well, can I see God's hand in this? Can I see his sovereignty and his purposes uh, in my own life? And that what I've got to do then is I've got to surrender. I've got to say, okay, you're the boss. Uh, You know best. And I'm prepared to accept this difficult period from your hand and, and try to learn, learn through it. So, it's it's a place of where we surrender to God, but paradoxically, um, it's also a place of struggle and struggle with evil. And, and isn't that interesting that that uh, just take the, the example of Jesus, who is who the Spirit takes him out into the wilderness, but he, he's there 
so he can be attacked and and uh, it, it's in the wilderness that the evil the forces become much more obvious you know while, while, while we're living in our promised lands surrounded by the flesh pots or by the milk and honey uh, the voice of the evil one can seem quite subdued and, and distant but it's when we're in the wilderness place that the forces of evil seem so much more obvious and confronting. And how does it change our experience if we start to see the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic as a, as a wilderness? What, does that, what difference does that perspective make for us right now as Christians, do you think? Well, I think we need to be asking the question, you know, what what is it revealing about me what what is this wilderness experience revealing about me is it is it as i'm afraid for many of us is it is it just shining a, a fairly harsh spotlight on on some pretty negative stuff inside my heart um is it shining a spotlight on this whole question of fear and anxiety and my inability to trust and worries constant worrying about the future or or is it shining a spotlight on some hidden addictions you know that, uh, that 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 I'm really struggling with, and 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 which this wilderness experience seems to be exacerbating. So I think I think it's sort of trying to learn, you know, what, what as a, from a diagnostic point of view, what is this wilderness experience um, showing me? But th- but then moving on from that, because there's another beautiful thing. That, that comes out in the in the Bible, and that is that the wilderness that God provides uh, unexpected sources of sustenance and refreshment in the desert. So, out of a clear blue sky comes manna, um, and out of the rock uh, gushes water, living water, and and um, so God provides in in a quite often remarkable and unexpected way uh, resources sustenance both physical and spiritual sustenance and amazingly jesus picks up on both those metaphors himself you know he describes himself as the bread of life identifying himself with the manna and also as um living waters linking to that image of the rock and and so in some strange way he seems to be suggesting that what god was giving people in the wilderness was himself Exactly. And, and isn't that one of the lessons potentially that we could be learning here in our own little wilderness experience? And, uh, and that is, it's above all an opportunity for a deeper, a more honest, a more open uh, relationship with Jesus himself. That, as you say, he becomes the spiritual sustenance in our own deserts. So I guess we need to drawing to a close, we need to talk about the idea of the discipline of Christian hope as the kind of framework in which we try and sit in as Christians during these times of testing, during these wilderness periods. Um, do you want to just explain what, what exactly you mean by the discipline of Christian hope? Yes, I, I think it's interesting to think of, of hope not as a kind of, it's oh, so often it, it's, it's, it's described as something, as just a, an emotion which hits you, you know, I'm feeling hopeful today. Or I'm not feeling hopeful today. You know, it's it's this kind of chemical reaction which just comes. 
which is which is not the way uh, that Christianity thinks of hope. Uh, Christianity thinks of hope as a much more concrete uh, reality, but it's something that we need to exercise a discipline. We need to, in other words, it's something we choose to do. We choose to be hopeful. We choose uh, to set our our our, our thinking uh, on on future hope. And um, G.K. Chesterton, I, I think, I, I haven't been able to find the quote, but I, I'm pretty sure he did say that there were two sins against Christian hope, the sin of presumption and the sin of despair. So so presumption is to say, well, everything's going to be fine. You know, I don't, I, you know, that it's, God is going to bless me. Uh, no need to worry at all. Um, that's not genuine hope. That's just presumption. Uh, and, the, and the opposite sin is the sin of despair, uh, and it's to say nothing can make it better. I'm all, I always mess up. My life is hopeless. There's nothing to look forward to in the future. And what's interesting is that Chesterton fingers both of those reactions as, as fundamentally sinful, uh, as reflecting our fallenness, whereas what we're called to do is this daily discipline of choosing to set our minds on the hope that's set before us. Hmm. And, and like I've mentioned at the start, we all probably can think of one or two uh, Christians we know who have that kind of blithe assumption, which refuses to engage with the messy reality of life and says, oh, well, that's not really a bad thing because ultimately we're Christians and therefore it's all going to be fine. And that's fundamentally, as you say, not just unsatisfactory, but actually uh not not grounded in 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 reality exactly it's it's an illusion it's another form of idolatry um so genuine hope always is reality is re- reality based i mean in other words we recognize there are real risks there are real uncertainties um but uh i choose to focus on some other realities and those are the realities of the christian faith and and just very briefly, I think you can break it down in, into hope for today. It's interesting that the manna, you know, in the wilderness, the manna came every day, every day, every day, except on the Sabbath. And it was, there was only enough for that day. So they couldn't make a sort of massive store. You know, what I really need to do is build up three works, three weeks worth of manna, and then I'll be really secure. I mean, it was the whole point was you only got enough for the day. And so this idea that, that I can choose to have hope for today I think that's linked to the idea of mental hygiene that that I practice uh, every day, choosing what to focus my thoughts on, and choosing to focus my my thoughts on something that's positive, and and particularly on on the reality of God's uh, love and His working in my life. And that's interestingly also related to to a discipline of gratitude. You know, if if I choose every day to be grateful for what God has given me and um, that in itself is is a way of practicing hope, and then there's there's hope for the future, um, and reminding myself of the faithfulness of God. Um, I love the literal translation at the end of the twenty third Psalm. You know, it says, "Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life." It, it, the actual literal Hebrew is much stronger than that. It says, "Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me." It's going to dog my steps, you know, as though God is on my case and he's not 
going to give up. And it's a, it's a wonderful thought, you know, as I look back on my life of more than 40 years of, of, of Christian faith, I can see that God's faithfulness and mercy and goodness has pursued me and my loved ones uh, over over these 40 years. And therefore, as I look to the future, I can say, surely that's going to continue. And, and then finally, there's ultimate hope, you know, that, that um, Christian hope never stops at the grave. It always goes beyond uh, with a kind of longing and yearning for the new heaven and the new earth. And, and the groaning of the current age is a groaning of childbirth. It's not a groaning of despair, Paul says. It, it's the groaning of childbirth and, and of the new age that is going to come. Uh, and so these there's hope for today there's hope for our human futures and there's hope beyond the grave ultimate hope and and as i choose to fill my minds with those realities i'm finding an antidote uh, to this uh, anxiety fear and despair that comes with it thanks john that's really really helpful i'm sure we'll speak again soon this episode of matters of life and death if you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about you can find lots more to read listen and watch at john's website he's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the bible to artificial intelligence all free to access and share please visit johnwyatt.com that's j-o-h-n-w-y-a-t-t.com if you've enjoyed this podcast please do share it with friends it can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>